Well, this week, Kathy and I went to see a movie. <clears throat> we don't go to see a lot of movies, but we uh, saw one this week that we you know, were sort of interested in, and I won't tell you what it is because I'm about to slam it. <clears throat> but we really look forward to it, and the reason we look forward to it is because of the trailer. How many times have we seen a trailer that, I mean, it looked great? It's funny action. Think, man, if this is what the movie's like, I've got to go see this movie. And you go see the movie, and you know what? That's what the movie was like. That was it. You saw in the trailer the good parts of the movie. And the rest, you, you sort of expect that it was like this, the tip of the iceberg, and you get to the movie house, and you watch the movie, and you realize the tip of the iceberg was the iceberg. That thing was floating on the bottom, you know, right there. So it was kind of disappointing. And I, th I th began thinking about that. You know, it's true of movies often because marketing's job is to just to get you there. And then once you're there, you know, they've got your money. And unless you make a stink about getting a refund, you're sort of stuck, especially with the $12 popcorn that you, that you buy. <laughs> but we have expectations of movies. We have expectations of life as consumers in America that the marketing is not lying to us, that if we actually take the bait and buy it, that we're going to get what we expected that we're going to have. And sometimes we don't. And we have expectations that go beyond us as consumers, but that, as, that include us as people. We expect that people will do unto us as we do unto them, or as we give them the benefit of the doubt that they'll do the same for us. It doesn't always work that way. We think that because we've paid for something, or because it's moral, or it's right, or, or because it makes sense to us, here's where it starts to get fuzzy, it makes sense to us, why don't you do it that way? And we have expectations of other people, and when they aren't met, we feel justified in our disappointment. I kind of felt justified at being disappointed at, at the movie. Um... Now, we don't admit it, but we've got these same expectations of God. Uh, well, let me just ask you, don't answer out loud, but do you, have, do you expect anything from God? You do. I'll answer for you. That's why we pray. We pray with ex expectation that it makes a difference. We have expectations of God. Some of the expectations regard answered prayer, but some of them regard what we read in the Bible. God, this is what you said. This is what I expect. And the challenge then becomes, when can I expect it? We have a confidence that it's going to happen, and we just aren't real sure exactly when. I've always been amazed as we read the life of Christ. We're in the book of Mark, but it's true in all of the Gospels that he seemed to disappoint just about everybody he came into contact with. Now, there were some that were really glad that he came along, particularly those who, healed, who were healed by Christ. But when you think about his life in a big, broad sweep, the significant people that he rubbed shoulders with, he disappointed. His leaders were very disappointed in him as a rabbi and as a teacher, and certainly the Messiah part wasn't even considered. His parents misunderstood him. 
that incident at the temple when he was 12 years old just took the cake. Mary finally just said, you know, why have you done this? Our father, your, your father and I have been looking for you. They were disappointed in their perfect son. His leaders thought that he was possessed. His family, as he began his ministry, thought that he was crazy. They said he's lost his senses and they came to take possession of him. His hometown, you remember, found him offensive. And even his prophetic forerunner, John the Baptist, had second thoughts. Jesus disappointed just about everybody he met. And honestly, we fall into that same camp. As we read the Gospels and we read the life of Jesus, and we bring all those expectations, not just as American consumers, but as followers of Jesus. I mean, we've devoted everything to Jesus Christ, like the disciples have. Our lives, our eternities, we expect a lot from Jesus. And the challenge is, when can we expect it? Well, let's look together at the Gospel of Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7, as we continue through this great Gospel, remember that Mark was not an eyewitness to these events. Um, Matthew was. uh, John was. Luke tells us that he did a lot of research for the book of Luke and the book of Acts. But Mark, where did Mark get his information? Mark probably got his information from Peter. Peter, in one of his letters, refers to Mark as my son, meaning a spiritual disciple. And so the gospel of Mark is in a, in a, a very sort of sideways sense, the gospel of Peter, if you want to think of it that way. And so whenever Peter appears in the gospel of Mark, You know, there's nothing that we can say, thus says the Lord, on this, but it's very likely that Peter's thumbprint is is pressed into so many of these passages of the Gospel of Mark because Mark and Peter were this uh, mentor-disciple relationship. And what we're going to see here in Mark chapter 7 and 8 as we read through this will show us. And in fact, as we get even further on in the weeks to come into the Passion Week, uh, we'll see that even more clearly. So Mark chapter 7, you remember where we've come so far in this gospel. Jesus has offered the kingdom of God to Israel contingent upon their repentance, just like the Old Testament said. For blessings to come, Israel had to repent. Well, Israel wasn't too keen on repenting. Uh, in in face of this Messiah, Jesus. He wasn't what everybody wanted. Again, he sort of failed expectations. And so Jesus began to withdraw this offer to the of the kingdom. It hasn't officially been withdrawn, but he can see it coming. He knows there's going to be an official rejection of him. And we'll see it in the Gospel of Mark, the point that it occurs. But Jesus knows it's coming, and so he anticipates that. And he begins less and less to to offer Israel the kingdom, and more and more he now begins to shift his emphasis to preparing the disciples for plan B, which which was in God's mind plan A all along, and that is the, the age of the church. So he is preparing these 12 men for something they don't even know they're being prepared for, which is a great principle to think about in your life as well. What you're going through right now is a preparation for the next 
season of life, the next year or whatever is in your future that you don't even know to anticipate it. So let's look at another great passage that talks about Jesus preparing these 12 for the age of the church. Mark chapter 7, let's start in verse 24. Mark 7, 24. Jesus got up and went away from there to the region of Tyre. And when he had entered a house, he wanted no one to know of it, yet he could not escape notice. But after hearing of him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately came and fell at his feet. Now, the woman was a Gentile of the Syrophoenician race, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he was saying to her, let the, little, let the children be satisfied first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered and said to him, Yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. And he said to her, Because of this answer, go. The demon has gone out of your daughter. And going back to her home, she found the child lying on the bed, the demon having left her. So Christ leaves Israel. If Keep your hand here in uh, Mark and turn back to the maps in the back and find if you've got a map on the ministry of Jesus, you probably only have one, the ministry of Jesus or something that shows you the, the full breadth of Israel. And look in the far north. On the Mediterranean coast in the far north, you should see on a little point that juts out uh, Tyre, T-Y-R-E. Christ leaves Israel. I've heard some people say that Jesus never left his own country, and it's not true. He did. He left Israel and went up into the area of Phoenicia. This woman, we're told, was of the Syrophoenician uh, area. And Jesus went up into this Gentile Greek area. And so you kind of get the sense he is taking the disciples on a mission trip. He really is. He's taking them out of Israel into Gentile territory. And he leaves Israel. That's very significant. And he walks about 40 miles northwest up to Tyre along the Mediterranean coast. And Mark tells us so that we don't miss it, this woman was a Gentile. Verse 26, this woman was a Gentile of the Syrophoenician race. Literally in the margin, my margin says, this woman was a Greek. She is a Gentile, meaning she's not a Jew, but specifically she was a Greek. Meaning, and also she would have spoken Greek. And so when Jesus had this conversation with her, Jesus isn't speaking Aramaic. He's speaking Greek. Um, Greek was sort of the, uh, what's called the lingua franca of, of, of the day. For us in the, in the world today, it's probably English is the, the universal language that's spoken over so many different countries. And that's good because we speak English. Um, but in Jesus' day, it was Greek. And God set this up through Alexander the Great and his uh, Macedonian just empire spreading all over and taking all over. He imposed the Greek culture over all of this area. And so people, in addition to their own native language, also learned to speak Greek. This is how Peter, Peter, a fisherman, spoke Greek. And we know that because he wrote First and Second Peter in Greek. S same 
as with uh, John writing the gospel, his epistles, and the book of Revelation in Greek. So Greek was a language that people knew at the time. And Christ, leaving Israel, going up to this area, and engaging with this Greek Gentile woman, spoke Greek to her. Now think about how this would be preparing his disciples. They're leaving Israel and going to another area. They're speaking Greek to this to this woman. And the disciples, of course, would later use the Greek language to, to impact the world through writing the New Testament. Now, at first, Jesus seems, well, can we say it? A little rude to this woman. Um, she asks him, Lord, please heal my daughter. And Mark's account is a little brief here. But basically, if you look at the other Gospels and, and, and put them together, Jesus basically dismisses her and basically, in a way, says no. It's not right to take away, you know, he uses this metaphor of the children be satisfied first to take their bread and throw it to the dogs, meaning it's not right to take away the emphasis, I've come for Israel. Why would I give to the Gentiles um, what it's supposed to be for Israel. This is what he means by his metaphor. Some, some say that maybe he means the disciples, but I think it's a broader term. If you look at the flow of Mark's gospel, it's a broader term, a metaphor referring to Israel. And Jesus asks her with this metaphor, why would I take what was the blessing that's supposed to be reserved for Israel and give it to the dogs? Now, Jesus isn't just talking to the woman. His disciples are listening. And so it's a question not just for her, but it's a question for them. Why would I take the blessing that's reserved just for Israel and give it to Gentiles? She answered it eloquently. Because Israel has rejected what you've tried to give them, is basically what she says. And she follows right along with the metaphor, the crumbs fell off their table. And he, he says, because of this answer, go. And of course... Um, the child is healed. It's interesting, the verse 30, going back to her home, she found the child lying on the bed. Literally the word, she found the child thrown on the bed. It was almost like the demon was just done and left. And the child is, is laying there on the bed. Jesus heals this, this, uh, this child from a distance without even a command, just saying it's done, go ahead and go back home. The disciples are aware, the disciples see this and see Jesus ministering outside of Israel to Gentiles in light of the fact that Israel has rejected his message. So let's continue. Verse 31. Again, he went out from the region of Tyre and came through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee within the region of Decapolis. They brought to him one who was deaf and spoke with difficulty, and they implored him to lay his hands on him. Jesus took him aside from the crowd by himself and put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, he touched his tongue with the saliva. And looking up to heaven with a deep sigh, he said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, and the impediment of his tongue was removed, and he began speaking plainly. And he gave orders, and he gave them orders not to tell anyone, 
But the more he ordered them, the more widely they continued to proclaim it. They were utterly astonished, saying, He has done all things well. He makes even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Now notice once again, Mark gives us a geographical reference, and it's significant. Jesus, again, he leaves the area of Tyre, goes, it says, through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee. So now he's back in Israel, but then he says he goes within the region of the Decapolis. So now he leaves Israel once again. And Decapolis is a Greek word, Decapolis, ten cities. It's ten Greek cities that basically made up this area east and south of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is walking these disciples I mean, all over the place. And he's leading them into Gentile areas. This is a Gentile area. And Mark, of course, is written to Gentiles, primarily, who lived in Rome. And so the Gentiles in Rome are seeing Christ's passion for Gentiles. By the way, you know that's been God's passion all along? As you read the Old Testament, there's obviously an emphasis on his love for uh, Israel, because that's, that's the majority of God's focus in the Old Testament. When you think about his desires to populate the whole world, the command given to Adam and Eve at the beginning is to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then the, uh, the command that occurred in uh, the judgment that occurred with the flood was a judgment over all the earth because God was dealing with all, all the world. And then at Babel, the, the problem with the languages, God was dealing with all the earth because he judged, it was a global judgment. And God judged the earth by dispersing the languages. So now from one language, now the world has many languages. And right after that, God begins to focus on one man, one nation, Abraham, Genesis 12. And from Genesis 12 on, the focus is Israel. But even with Abraham, it wasn't just to Israel, because God told Abraham, through you, all nations will be blessed. So God's passion has always been a missionary passion. It's always been a global passion, even when he was dealing just with, just with Israel. And you see this uh, all throughout the Old Testament, that God is using Israel to minister to the world. The, um, the epitome of this example was Solomon. At the height of Solomon's grand kingdom, the queen of Sheba comes and says, tell me about your God. God was using Israel as a magnet to draw the nations. Now as the New Testament comes, you see the, the, the judgment at Babel with the dispersion of languages reversed at Pentecost, with, with now all of the disciples speaking in tongues and speaking in languages, now they are ministering to those particular languages. And so there's this reversal of, of what occurred at Babel with Pentecost, and now God begins to deal with the world as a whole again through the church. So you see God's plan has always been the Gentiles as well as the Jews. The Jews were simply the means by which uh, God's love for the world was distributed. So, God's passion has always been uh, to Gentiles as well. Well, let's continue. Chapter 8, verse 1. In those days, when there was again a large crowd and they had nothing to eat, Jesus called his disciples and said to them, I feel compassion for the people 
because they've remained with me now three days and have nothing to eat. If I send them away hungry to their homes, they will faint on the way. And some, and some have come from a great distance. And his disciples answered him, Where will anyone find enough bread? Here in this desolate place to satisfy these people. And he was asking them, How many loaves do you have? And they said, Seven. And he directed the people to sit down on the ground, and taking the seven loaves, he gave thanks and broke them and started giving them to his disciples to serve to them. And they served them to the people. They also had a few small fish. And after he had blessed them, he ordered these to be served as well. And they ate and were satisfied, and they picked up seven large baskets full of what was left over of the broken pieces. About 4,000 were there, and he sent them away. Well, this is deja vu all over again, isn't it? The feeding of the 4,000. In fact, some critics look at the Gospels and say the feeding of the 4,000 is just you know, the Gospels' attempt at restating the feeding of the 5,000 because there's so much that's similar between the two feedings. But the major difference, other than the, the number, you know, the 4,000, the 5,000, seven loaves, you know, there, there are some significant differences there. But the main difference is who are the eaters? They're Gentiles. Before the feeding of the 5,000 were Jews. This is, remember he's still in the area of Decapolis. These are Gentiles. And so you kind of understand why the disciples would be a little clueless about, you know, where they ask in verse 4, where will anyone be able to satisfy, find enough bread in this desolate place? You'd kind of think that the disciples would go, Jesus, this is the perfect setup. Remember what you did with the feeding of the 5,000? Do it again. That was great. I've been wanting to see that for months. Do it again. But they don't. They don't ask that. Instead, it's like, where are we going to find enough bread? They're right back at square one. And the main difference between the two crowds is now the disciples are dealing with Gentiles. And so for them, it doesn't even enter their mind. And that's why Jesus is trying to teach them. He took them up into Gentile area, and he had that conversation with the woman to teach them. He spoke Greek to the woman to teach them. Took them to Decapolis, repeated the miracle of the multiplication of the loaves and fish to teach the disciples they're going to be ministering to Gentiles. The feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000. Now the last time Jesus multiplied the fish and the loaves, he told his disciples to get into a boat, and what do you know, that's about to happen again. But the last time that happened, of course, the disciples and were faced a storm, but it doesn't happen this time. Instead, the storm meets them on the other side. Look at verse 10. Immediately he entered the boat with his disciples and came to the district of Dalmanutha. The Pharisees came out and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Sighing deeply in his spirit, he said, Why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Leaving them, he again embarked and went away to the other side. And they had forgotten to take bread and did not have more than one loaf in the boat with them, which is sort of funny. And he was giving orders to them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. They began to discuss with one another the fact that they had no bread. 
So Christ and the disciples cross over. The Pharisees come out and begin to argue with Jesus, and they ask him for a sign. If you are who you say who you are, prove it, as if he hasn't already given them enough. And Jesus basically says, no sign is going to be given to this generation. This generation. And here in Jesus' words, you can see in sort of a, um, a commitment here on Jesus' part, I'm done with this generation of leaders of trying to show you that I'm the Messiah. In fact, in Matthew's gospel, he says there's only one more sign that this generation is going to get, and that's the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man will be three days in the heart of the earth. In other words, you get one more sign. That's the resurrection. That's it. Jesus doesn't do public miracles any longer as a testimony that he is offering the kingdom to Israel. So he says, this generation doesn't get any more of those. Instead, he does private miracles. He pulls them aside. He tells people, don't tell anybody. He makes it quiet in order to instruct the disciples. And they get in the boat, and they start heading again to the other side. And it's so funny, they've forgotten to take bread. They don't, they've got one loaf and 13 guys in the boat. You can tell this is a men's retreat. <laughs> they didn't prepare well. You know, if you, put, if you put men in charge of packing, you know, it'll all fit, but you'll get on the road and you realize we don't have any snacks. You know, and as men, we think, that's fine, we'll just stop and get something. But, you know, women, they pack and they prepare and, you know, you got snacks for every day, all packaged in Ziploc bags and stuff. <laughs> The disciples had one loaf for 13 men. And Jesus uses this as a teaching example and says, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And the disciples are going, Okay, so we don't buy bread from them. Where are we going to get it? Jesus is like, I'm not talking about bread. Verse 17. Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet see or understand do you have a hardened heart? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000? How many baskets full of broken pieces you picked up? They said to him, 12. When I broke the seven for the 4,000, how many large baskets of broken pieces did you pick up? And they said to him, seven. And he was saying to them, do you not yet understand? Christ is saying to his men, look, guys, I can provide bread. That's not a problem. I did that like twice now. And he, he reminds them, how many did you pick up? So providing bread is not a problem. What he wants to teach them is beware of the leaven, that is the teaching of the Pharisees and of, and of Herod. And elsewhere, he says that this teaching is hypocrisy. And like leaven, it can spread. Beware of that. It can spread and it can take over. Jesus warns these guys to steer clear of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. And you can almost hear in Jesus' words this frustration. You know, rapid-fire questions he asks them over and over. And notice what he asks, verse 17 and 18. Do you not yet see? He likens sight to understanding. And this is important for the context that comes next. Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And then he reminds them of the bread. 
Remember when he did the, the, all the parables, and he would begin the parables by saying, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. It doesn't just mean he who has ears, let him hear, but let him understand. It's the same idea. Your eyes are not just for looking. Your eyes are for learning. Your ears are not just for hearing. Your ears are for learning, for insight. And that's what he's trying to get it through their heads. So, with that in mind, let's look at the very next very significant section. Verse 22. They came to Bethsaida, and they brought him a blind man, a blind man to Jesus, and implored him to touch him. Now, let me just pause for a second. What had Jesus just asked his disciples? Do you see anything? All right? Verse 22, they brought him a blind man. Verse 23, taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village. And after spitting on his eyes and laying his hand, hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, for I see them like trees walking around. Then again he laid his hands on his eyes, and he looked intently and was restored and began to see everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village, meaning don't tell anybody about this. So remember, just before this chapter we're in, chapter 8, there was a miracle of one who couldn't hear. Jesus healed him. And then the feeding of the 4,000, and Jesus asked them in the boat, do you not hear? Do you not see? And then what happens right after that is the miracle of a blind man. So these two miracles of the hearing and the seeing and Jesus' question in between them tell us, Mark is telling us, that these miracles are intended to instruct his disciples who weren't hearing and who weren't seeing. And this last miracle is particularly important. Jesus heals this man in stages. He wasn't like having a problem healing. Jesus usually gets that right. But he did it in stages in order to show his disciples, this is how you're seeing. Your understanding is coming in stages. You see, but you see blurry. We need to clear that up. And so in order to clear that up, Jesus takes them once again out of Israel into a pagan area up into the north to Caesarea Philippi. Verse 27. Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do the people say that I am? And they told him, saying, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. But others, one of the prophets. Now let's just pause there for a second. He takes them up north to the area of Caesarea Philippi. This is a pagan area. If you've ever been to Israel, Caesarea Philippi was probably on your tour. It's the, it's the area up north. It's beautiful. It's lush. It's green. It's the perfect place. If I was going to be an idolater and want to live for a long time, that's where I'd be. And that's what happened there. They, they had a, a shrine to the god Pan uh, uh, up there. And, they, and today the place is called Panias from the god Pan, or Banias, because Arabs can't pronounce the P, so it's now called Banias. Um, and it's a pagan area of worship. And Jesus takes them up to this area of pagan worship and asks them the question that is the most important question that anyone can ever be asked. 
Who is Jesus Christ? Who am I? Who do the people say that I am? And the answers that the people give are answers that we hear today. He's a prophet. He's a good man. He's a moral teacher. But that's it. He's just a man. And then Jesus turns and asks them. Verse 29. He continued by questioning them, but who do you say that I am? The emphasis is in the original language. Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about him. Which seems really odd. I mean, isn't the point of the Great Commission to go into all the world and to baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? Isn't the point of the Great Commission to tell people about Christ? Why would Jesus tell these disciples, don't tell anybody that I'm the Christ? Because their perception of Jesus was blurry at this point. Remember the two-stage miracle? What they saw of Christ was not clear. They saw Jesus just as the Messiah who would come and squash Rome and set up the kingdom of God on earth, and we all get to rule with Jesus. That was their perception of the Messiah, and for them it was great. It was a, a, a Messiah that allowed them to have power. Jesus says, don't tell anybody about me, because you're only going to give them half the truth. And so now Jesus turns on the fan and tries to clear the fog a little bit with the other side of the coin that they weren't ready to hear. But they needed to hear it. Look at verse 31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. You never hear this before this moment about Jesus dying. There have been some hints of it. But verse 31 says he began to teach them. This is really the first time. That means the disciples, if you, if you trace it all throughout the Gospels, so the disciples have been with Jesus now for about two and a half years. So imagine that. Two and a half years following Jesus with the assumption that he's going to set up the kingdom, that we're going to rule on thrones beside, on the 12 tri, over the 12 tribes with Jesus over the, over the world. And Jesus drops this bomb now about how he, he has to go to Jerusalem, be rejected by the leaders, and be killed. That's all they heard. They didn't hear this part about being raised on the third day because Jesus, Peter takes him aside. Peter doesn't take him aside and say, this resurrection will never happen to you. That's not what he means. Takes him aside and rebukes Christ because of the, this death part. Now, if you were to read the, the Old Testament and looked at the Messiah, you see a conflict in the prophecies about the Messiah. Most of the prophecies that people love talked about, you know, the Messiah bringing in the kingdom of God. 
But there was also another prophetic part of the Old Testament that talked about the Messiah being the suffering servant who would lay down his life in payment for sins. Isaiah gives a great picture of this in Isaiah 53, 52 and 53. John the Baptist struggled with this message. Everybody struggled with this message. In fact, so much of a struggle did the Jews have with this conflicting view of the Messiah that some Jews even believed that there would be two Messiahs, one who would reign forever and one who would die, because how in the world do you, can a dead Messiah reign? Well, 2020 hindsight, we understand the resurrection takes care of that, but <laughs> they didn't understand it at the time. So Peter takes him aside and starts to rebuke him. Jesus' purpose conflicted with Peter's purpose and gives us a principle that we can apply to our lives, and here it is. Here's the first lesson after all this scripture. The lesson is there is always a next step in your relationship with Jesus Christ. There is always a next step. Like the disciples, you and I see Jesus, even as clearly as we think we see him, we see him blurry. We don't have a completely clear view of everything Jesus is. We have a great view. We have more than the disciples had at this moment, thanks to the, the rest of the New Testament. But Jesus still has much to teach you about who he is. Even if you know Jesus really well, a God who is infinite cannot communicate himself to us as finite beings all at once. It has to happen bit by bit. And as a result of our growing appreciation for Christ, we have to understand that, like Paul said, in some sense we see in a mirror dimly right now. We grow more and more to understand Christ as we go on in life. And so the principle is this, that there's always a next step in your relationship with Christ. I read a business book recently that had nothing to do with ministry, but it had everything to do with information. And when I read it, I thought that is exactly what our spiritual life is like. Um, the book is, what is the book called? It's called Fast Forward, Fast Slash Forward. But here's the, uh, here's the quote. It talks about the amazing amount of knowledge that we're gaining just exponentially each year. It says, while the human race is becoming collectively more knowledgeable every year, each of us as individuals is becoming relatively more ignorant. It's a paradox of progress. The more we know, the less I understand. Every morning when we wake up, we are in relative terms a bit more stupid than the day before. That's so true. You think about all the knowledge that we're gaining exponentially. It just shows you how much that you don't understand. If you want to really grow in your ignorance, go to seminary. <laughs> because you had no idea how much you didn't know until you begin to peel back all the layers that are in the Bible. And the best that seminary can do for you or any serious study of the Bible, not just seminary, but any serious study of the Bible, once you get into it, all it really does is show you there is a whole universe out there of understanding in the scriptures that you can't possibly hope to plumb even with a lifetime of study. It is an inexhaustible text. 
And that's one of the things that makes the Bible so wonderfully attractive to us, is we can constantly come to it. And no matter how many times you have read Mark chapter 8, Mark chapter 7 and 8, there's always something else for you to glean and for me to glean. There's always a next step in your relationship with Jesus Christ. So just as this blind man saw in stages, the disciples would come to understand Jesus in stages, just like us. How does that happen? How does it happen? For Joseph, it happened, he learned to wait on God through years of injustice. Job got a perspective of God through suffering that he could have received no other way. Hannah got a picture of God's grace by being barren that she would have gotten no other way. Jesus told his disciples, I have many things to teach you, but you cannot bear them all now. That's true of us as well. Christ gives us a greater picture of who he is, often by allowing us to struggle. And in that struggle, he reveals who you are, and then he reveals who he is as he comes alongside and gives you his grace. Notice that it wasn't until Jesus introduced the idea of the cross that Peter pulled him aside and rebuked him. We'll always do that to God. To say, Lord, this will never happen to you. What was Peter really meaning? I don't want this to happen to me. Because if this happens to you, then where's that whole kingdom thing? And where do I sit? Who do we say that Jesus is? Well, he is the Son of God who died on the cross for our sins. He's coming again. And in the meantime, we want him to bless our lives, make us happy, and fulfill all of our expectations. That's Jesus Christ. Well, we would never say that out loud. But honestly, a lot of times, that's our hope. He's died for my sins. He's coming again. And in the meantime, God, make me happy. Take away all my pain. To one degree or another, we're all standing there with Peter. Our obstacles to growing and understanding is, in a way, thinking we see clearly, as opposed to realizing, as clear as we see, there's still another level of my relationship with Christ. You know, that level begins with realizing that you don't have what it takes to get to heaven, that God's standard for heaven is perfection. And you can live a life that's absolutely perfect, but with one sin, it's enough to disqualify you. But the good news is Jesus came, and as he told Peter he would do, he was killed, and he died as our, in our place on the cross, and three days later he rose again. The great promise of Scripture is that if you believe that truth, that he died for you, that your sins are forgiven. You know, Satan's first lie to the woman in the garden is something we see here in the very next verse. Peter took Jesus aside and rebuked him, and now look at what Jesus did, verse 33. Turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Again, remember, 
The Gospel of Mark is, in a very real sense, the Gospel of Peter, and Peter would not have ever forgotten this moment. Peter had just said, you are the Christ. Jesus affirmed that, and then Jesus turns around and calls Peter Satan. You're not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's interests. Satan's first lie to the woman in the garden was a temptation of self-interest apart from God. And he's been doing that with us ever since. He tries to show us how God's way doesn't make sense. Here are the holes in the logic of biblical thinking. And if you can't plug up those holes with Scripture, then I've got plan B that you can take. There's always this temptation to exit God's highway and to just try to take the side road. You know, you keep the highway in view but you're going to stay off here on the side road that Satan offers as an alternative, as a shortcut to the destination. He tries to get us to abandon God in times of struggle rather than to cling to him. So lesson one I mentioned, there's always a next step in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Here's the second and final lesson. To take your relationship to Jesus to the next level. Set your mind on God's interests above your own. To take your relationship with Jesus to the next level, set your mind on God's interest above your own. Remember those Viewmaster toys, you know, that we have? You had that little round thing that you'd slide in and you'd click it, you know, hold it up to the light and click it, and you'd see these 3D, you know, images of like Yosemite Park or uh, mine were cartoons like Popeye and things like that. But it was 3D and it was so cool because how did it do that? I remember taking, taking off and looking at it and thinking, well, it's not that big. How do they fit all that in there? And the thing is, it's because it's an illusion. It shows you two images, but each eye sees each image individually, and it gives the impression of a three-dimensional image. It, gives you, it does that to your brain. Well, there were some tests that were done of people. Um, that They used basically this Viewmaster toy, and they put... Two different images, not images that complemented each other to give a, a three-dimensional aspect. They gave images that were completely different. Like they, one, one eyeball would look at a baseball player and another eyeball would look at a bullfighter. And you, you'd see those two things. And then they ask you, what did you see? Well, Americans saw a baseball player. Spaniards saw a bullfighter. They were both there. They, uh, they showed people a six of spades that was colored red instead of the normal black, and people were clearly dis discomforted by that. Now, I wouldn't know the difference, but some people would, would be really uncomfortable with that, and they called it a six of spades even though they were very uncomfortable with it. And the bottom line is that they discovered from this is that people tend to see what they're trained to see or what they're used to seeing or what they want to see. We'd see a baseball player, the Spaniards see a bullfighter. Which image of the Messiah did Peter see when Jesus handed him the Viewmaster toy? Here, Jesus, look in there, tell me what you see. If Peter was honest, he'd say, well, I see men like trees walking around. That was the point. Jesus said, well, let me clear that up for you and, and show you the other side of the Messiah. He's not just the reigning Messiah, but he's also going to die. And these two images of the Messiah were not something that Peter could deal with, and so he chose the bullfighter. 
He chose the Messiah that would reign because that is what he wanted to see. That's what he was used to seeing. That's what he expected to see. We're like Peter. Um, We focus on our agenda. And when we see something that we don't like, we'll say, no, Lord, this will never happen to you. They were so focused on their expectations that anything that, that came in and entered the scene that was not part of their expectations, they rejected. That's, and we'll do the same thing. We'll come to the Bible and we'll read our Bible like we do a menu. Well, let's see. What looks good today? Um, you know this part about loving the Lord with all your heart? I can do that. That sounds great. I'll do that. But then it says, love your enemies as yourself. I, you know, we'll turn the page. What else we got? <laughs> we'll read the Bible like a menu. And Jesus, we expect, is standing there ready to take our order. Or another metaphor. We'll, we'll read the Bible like a buffet. And our plate will go down. And we don't eat everything on the buffet. We pick what we want. Leave the green bean casserole. And pick up the pumpkin pie, don't we? And when we're done, we have a plate that represents us. We have a God in our image rather than the complete picture that we're given of Jesus Christ. Jesus is not a waiter ready to take our order. He is the Lord who gives the orders. And he tells us this is how it's going to be. So when we think God has let us down and he's failed our expectations, the reality is our expectations have let us down. Our expectations are false. It's not the Lord. And if you begin to notice that things are happening in your life that you don't like, and obviously that happens to all of us, they're designed not to torment you, but they're designed to teach you, to instruct you, to grow to have a bigger awe of God than the awe that you have of a, of, of a God made in your image. This is why the challenge is, if you want to take your relationship to Jesus on the next level, set your mind on God's interest, not just your own. Eat everything on the buffet. Order everything on the menu. Take every verse that seems like you don't want it to apply because it, it really pokes at that private hard part of your heart. If you want your relationship to Christ to go to the next level, have the courage to let him tell you how it's going to be. Let's, com- let's finish and turn, if you would, to 2 Peter chapter 3. We'll finish the, uh, the, the gospel, as it were, of Peter, Mark. And let's read the last words of Peter. And these are literally his last words. 2 Peter 3 very end of the chapter, 17 and 18. Peter writes, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Peter says, you have to watch out that you're not carried away by error of people. If you look at the context just before, the error of people who distort the scriptures. 
but instead, verse 18, grow, he says, in the grace and knowledge. So there's always a next step in your relationship with Jesus Christ. And to take your relationship to Christ the next level, to grow, as Peter says, you set your mind on God's interests above your own. Let's pray. Our father Paul wrote, our brother Paul wrote in Philippians 3, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Jesus Christ. I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward, to what lies ahead, I press on to the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let us, therefore, as many as are mature, have this attitude. And if in anything you have a different attitude, God will reveal that also to you. Lord, we need to grow, as Paul writes here, to have that single aim. We need to grow as Peter wrote in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is always a next step, as our passage in Mark has shown us. The best we can do, even with the clear understanding we have of our Savior Jesus, is to see him through a mirror dimly, like trees walking around. There is always a next step in our relationship. We haven't arrived. We haven't become perfect. So help us, Father, to take that next step, to grow in our relationship with him by not setting our mind on our interests to allow you to be Lord. And if you need to introduce the cross to our lives, that we wouldn't reject it like Peter did up in Caesarea Philippi, but that we would say, Lord, I don't understand it. I don't like it. But if you'll walk through it with me, I'll go. And therefore we grow in our relationship with Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.